3, and we're going to be looking at verses 10 to 14. Just a few verses today. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. So I was thinking about redeemed as we were singing that beautiful song. I was thinking of my sister-in-law who's worshiping the Lord in heaven at this time. And a few weeks ago, I caught at her funeral, I caught the end of this story. I was distracted by a daughter of mine, so I only caught the end of the story. But they were trying to, um, I just want you to know why I was distracted. I wasn't texting during the funeral, but it was my daughter. But... um, saying she had to go to the bathroom. But anyways, I caught the end of the story, but the pastor was sharing out a few weeks ago, they wanted her to write that she was healed. They wanted her to write that she was healed. I am healed. And she kept writing, I am redeemed. I am redeemed. And you know, that is so much of a bigger deal, being spiritually redeemed, being spiritually healed, uh, being spiritually totally made whole in heaven. And in Christ, we can all be, and hopefully we all are, redeemed. And right now, we have the awesome privilege of looking at the Word of God. And, you know, we're in a culture, they call it postmodernism. Sometimes we say we're leaving postmodernism. Technically, total postmodernism, or what's called postmodernity, doesn't work, because technically that means anything goes. There's no absolute authority. There's no respect for authority, you know, and there's, there's just so much more. You can't put those types of generational things in a box. But We're in a society where increasingly we don't believe in authority. We don't believe in truth. But I want to say I believe God has communicated it to us. And his word is truth. The Bible is truth. And we have the privilege and the awesome privilege of having the Bible in plenty right now. All over right now in the United States of America, you can go online, you can go on a smartphone, you can go anywhere and find Bibles that are scarce in many other countries. In fact, the Bible is illegal in about a thousand countries. It's illegal. You will be imprisoned for having a Bible, and it's precious for somebody to get a hold of a Bible. Right now, I hope we take it seriously as we look at Galatians 3 here in just a minute and go and see what the Lord wants to show us and tell us from his word. We believe that the Bible is inspired, God's word to us, absolute and ultimate truth. And I believe we're in a society hurting for lack of truth and lack of authority and lack of respect And it's making us collapse and fall apart. And so hopefully we can value the word of God as we look at it. In order to introduce this passage, I read a story of Brian Loritz. Brian Loritz talks about taking his son to get blood drawn. Now, I don't know if you can remember, or maybe it's been recent for you, taking a child uh, to get blood drawn. And it's not a pleasant experience. I remember a few years ago, Mercedes and Abigail both had to get blood work. And Mercedes, being a little bit older, said, Abigail will be okay. And Abigail saying, I don't want to get blood drawn. I don't want to get blood work. And so we had to sit there while Mercedes was trying to be the tough one, saying, it'll be okay, Abby, it'll be okay. And I'm holding Abby, and she's just screaming <laughs> while the doctor's trying to draw blood. I'm thinking, gosh, am I allowed to hold her this tight? And then afterward, Mercedes, who was trying to be tough, did the same thing, <laughs> screamed all the way through it. Well, <laughs> but they made it, and they're still alive. <laughs> 
Praise God. You know, so the nurse was trying to encourage this Brian Loretz father, Brian Loretz child, I'm sorry, Brian Loretz son, it'll be okay. I'm going to give you this numbing spray. We're going to put this numbing spray on it. You won't feel a thing, and we're going to draw the blood. And that really was not encouraging the little boy. The little boy just kept telling his father, Dad, I can't do it. I just can't do it. Until Brian Loretz eventually said, Brian Loretz eventually said, Ma'am, I know what I'm about to ask you. Maybe out of bounds, but can you stick me first? Now, I don't like needles. I didn't do that for my daughters. <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I'm just not as tough as Blind Loritz. But he said, can you stick me first? Stick me first without the numbing spray. And she said, okay, I'll do it. This will just be between us, and I'll stick you first. So he said, now watch Daddy. And the nurse sticks and draws blood out of Brian Loritz and... His son watches it, and after his son watched them draw blood from him, the son was, allowed, was able to go through and have his own blood drawn. Brian Loritz closes this illustration saying, In the same way, when you find yourself in the midst of hard times, look to the place where they drew Jesus' blood. Look to the cross, and there you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is our Savior who's able to mediate for us, to us, able to understand what we go through. Today we're continuing our series on Galatians, and we're continuing with the emphasis on Jesus taking our place on the cross. Jesus taking our place on the cross, and we are saved by faith in him. No one can keep the law. The Old Testament law can be explained the following way. I had a professor share this illustration. He said it was, a, it was a Pentateuch class, so it was on the Old Testament. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Old Testament, also called the Torah in Hebrew. Pentateuch would be Greek. The first five books, Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I'm sure you all have them memorized and probably just read them through yesterday. Anyways, uh, the Pentateuch, the Old Testament can be described this way, he said. I'm going to give you a test. And no one can pass the test. And if you fail the test, you fail the course. I'm going to give you a test. No one can pass it, but if you fail the test, you fail the course. The point is that no one could keep the law. God gave us the law, and there's a purpose in the law. We're going to come back to that. There's many purposes in the law. We're going to come back to that here in a few weeks when we get into uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 25. Uh, Paul calls the law a tutor to lead us to Christ, and we're going to come back to that. But the Bible itself shares that no one can keep the law. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, and Romans 7, 7 through 9. In fact, Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says this. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law gives us those guardrails. It points to Jesus Christ and it shows that we need a Savior. And it gives us the knowledge of sin, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus. And the more I read through the Old Testament, uh, the more I read through the Bible as a whole, which is a collection of, uh, of many, many stories with one grand story about the Savior Jesus, the more I read through it, I can see in the Old Testament time and time again the po pointing to Jesus. Not in just the obvi obvious prophecies. I mean, there are over 300 obvious prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. But there's many, many little things where the people mess up once again. And the people mess up again. And they mess up again. And it's all showing you need a Savior. You can't do this on your own. And God lovingly sends a Savior for us. The Savior is Jesus. My theme today is the problem of the law but the solution of Jesus. Or to say it another way, 
The law curses, but Jesus saves. The law curses, but Jesus saves. Jesus is the one and only Savior. And the law curses because we could not keep the law. By now, I've given you lots of time. I hope you're at Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. Uh, I hope you're there in a Bible you brought with you, or a pew Bible, or on your smartphone. Keep the Facebook app closed. Unless you're going to post something I say, then it's okay. I'm just kidding. Don't even do that. No, save it for later. But go to Galatians 3, 10 to 14 if you're not there. Uh, for as many are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Curse is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not a faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might be uh, made to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Let me read through that passage just one more time before we talk about it more. He says, For as many are as of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed, this is an Old Testament quotation from Deuteronomy, actually. And if you want to learn more about Deuteronomy, you can come to Sunday school where I'm teaching Deuteronomy or Wednesday night Bible study. Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Verse 11, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. That is another Old Testament passage. However, verse 12, however, the law is not a faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us, redeemed us. There's that word, redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's another Old Testament quote. In order that... Whenever you see an order that, it's showing purpose. In order that, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might be to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So this is an awesome passage, and it is full. In four verses, it is full of Old Testament quotations. There are all kinds of Old Testament quotations right here, which the Apostle Paul <clears throat> uses to make his case. And I told you last week, I'll tell you again, and I'll share it again next week. When you have problems interpreting uh, Galatians or any book of the Bible, do cross-reference. Romans would be an expanded version of Galatians. Galatians is a short, a very short New Testament letter. And Romans is much longer. Galatians is six chapters. Romans is 16 chapters. And Romans is Paul's great treatise on salvation. Paul, Paul's great work on salvation. And Paul expands on many of these themes of Galatians in Romans. So I encourage you to read Romans right alongside reading Galatians. There is a logic in this passage. And the Moody Bible Commentary, which is a really short and good source, breaks down the logic of this passage with six statements. The blessing, number one, the blessing of the law is promised to those who obey. That's verse 12, quoting Leviticus 18.5. 
Number two, what Paul left unstated is that the blessing is never actually received. Instead, those who rely on works are not able to do all that is written in the law. Number three, thus all who rely on the law are cursed. Now, this is progressive logic. Number four, the truth of statement three above is confirmed. Since Habakkuk 2.4 says that the blessing comes by faith, it cannot come by obedience to the law. Number five, through his crucifixion, Christ redeemed believers from the penalty of the law. And number six, thus the blessing that was promised to Abraham, including the Holy Spirit, comes to all those who have faith, even Gentiles. And that's an awesome closing statement. Even Gentiles are included as children of Abraham. To be children of Abraham meant to be Jewish, and it was a privilege. They were God's chosen people. They are God's chosen people. But this is teaching that Gentiles, non-Jews, are grafted in. They're grafted in with the children of Abraham to be God's chosen people. So let's talk about the curse of the law, which is in verses 10 to 12. Verses 10 to 12 are all about the curse of the law. So if you got your Bibles, make sure you stay looking down at the passage as we talk about this. The verse is saying that we are cursed for following the works of the law. Why are we cursed? We are cursed because we cannot keep them. We cannot keep them. And there's a quote from Deuteronomy 27.26 right there. A quote from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 27.26. We cannot keep the whole law, and it's an all or nothing type of thing. If you cannot keep it all, you are cursed. And there you need a Savior. You need Jesus. And this is a larger section about being justified by faith. And last week I talked a lot about being justified. Being justified means to be declared righteous. We are declared righteous by faith. We cannot be declared righteous through the law. The point is clear. If we are living under the law, we are cursed if we do not keep the whole law. Verse 11, the just shall live by faith. And that's a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. So no one is justified by the works of the law. And this is evident because no one can keep the whole law. David Jeremiah in his study Bible shares, the law is like a chain that moors ships to a dock. And just as one broken link causes the entire chain to fail, so one transgression, one sin breaks the entire law. So imagine a chain, a large chain, mooring, holding uh, ships to a dock. And if that chain is broke, just one link breaks the entire chain, lets the ship loose, doesn't hold the ship to the dock. It's the same thing with us. If we're trying to follow the law, just one sin breaks the entire law. You have to keep the whole law completely. It's an all or nothing proposition. No amount of work can save us. Only God can declare us just. Galatians chapter 2 verse 16 shares, no one is justified by the works of the law, only justified by Jesus Christ. So verse 12, the law is not a faith. The man who does them lives by them. That's a quote from Leviticus 18.5. By the way, do you think the Old Testament was important to Paul? Yes. I mean, here he's citing it all over the place. Every, almost every verse, he's including a quote or an allusion to the Old Testament. They knew it that well. So it is important that we are also reading our Old Testament as well. David Jeremiah points out that Leviticus 18.5 reminds us we have to keep the whole law. And no one could do that but Christ. Jesus Christ, our Savior, did keep the whole law. And that's how he was able to save us. If, 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 if Jesus could not keep the whole law, he could not be our Savior. 
If you practice the law, you have to live by the law rather than live by faith. Verses 10 to 12 are negative. They're all negative about the law. So verses 13 through 14 switch to positive about Christ. Switching to positive about Christ. One source points out this. Listen to this. If someone really were to fulfill the entire corpus of Pentateuchal law with its 242 positive commands and 365 prohibitions, according to one rabbinic reckoning, then indeed such a person could stand before God at the bar of judgment and demand admittance to heaven on the basis of his or her performance. Yet, where on earth can such a flawless person be found? You hear that? 242 positive commands and 365 prohibitions in the law. None of us can keep them. By the way, that'll be on the test later. 242 positive commands, 365 prohibitions in the Old Testament law. No person could keep them. And that's why we needed a Savior. This is all pointing to Jesus, our Savior, and the need for a Savior. And as we talk about it, I hope that right now you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And you're trusting Him for your salvation. Because we need Him for our salvation, as this is pointing to. The same source shares with me, the same source, that no one can obey the law perfectly uh, and so receive life on this basis is demonstrated on a national scale by the Israelites, who no less than the Canaanites have polluted the Holy Land and have been expelled, therefore, because of their sin. Thus, both of these texts point to Israel's historical plight and God's end times solution as a context for Paul's presentation of the work of Christ. If you know anything about the Old Testament, Israel repeatedly chased after foreign idols, including child sacrificing, completely violating the law. God gives them the law, God saves them, God rescues them, and they totally turn on God. And then eventually they repent, and God rescues them again, and then they fall away again. Time and time again, Israel polluted the land, completely polluted the land, doing abominable things, such as child sacrificing. They could not keep the law either. Keeping the law is compared to the character, I like this, of Sisyphus in Greek mythology. I'm sure you all know of Sisyphus, right? <laughs> Sisyphus, he's our friend, right? Sisyphus in Greek mythology. And in this Greek mythology, they are forever consigned to rolling a huge boulder up a mountain, only to have it come crashing down upon their heads again and again. I mean, imagine that picture. Rolling a huge boulder up a mountain, but it's a huge boulder, and you just can't keep pushing it up the mountain, and it keeps coming down and crashing down upon you again and again. And I wonder, even as I talk about this, if even though you might know in your head you are saved by grace through faith in Christ, you feel like you are pushing a huge boulder up the mountain trying to keep the whole law. You know, in Christ, it changes things. We do try to follow the moral law. The Old Testament law had three parts, uh, moral, civil, and religious. Moral, civil, and religious. And the moral law certainly still applies. But we don't do this on our own. We do this under Christ with the Holy Spirit's help following Jesus. And if you feel overburdened, like you're trying to follow the law to be saved, I encourage you, reach out and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and trust in his grace. Trust in his grace. So now we see Jesus' solution. Jesus saves. And we see this in verses 13 through 14. Jesus' solution. Jesus saves. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us 
and from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Redeem means to buy back. It's comparable to be buy, buying a slave out of their slavery. We were slaves to sin, and, G, and Christ redeemed us. He bought us out of our sin to slavery. He bought us out because Jesus became a curse for us. Jesus became a curse for us when he went to the cross. When he went to the cross. And there's a quote from Deuteronomy 21:23. Another quote from Deuteronomy. Again, the idea switches to redemption in Christ. Redemption in Christ. Verse 14 says, The blessing of Abraham has come upon the Gentiles in Christ. And how does it come upon the Gentiles? Through faith. Through faith. The blessing of Abraham comes upon the Gentiles. I like that the David Jeremiah study Bible point is, it says, the Judaizers. Now, Judaizers were Jewish believers, or pseudo-believers, who wanted them to follow the whole law. And they had corrupted the people of Galatia. They had come in and they had ruined the Apostle Paul's foundation, saying you have to keep the whole law. And David Jeremiah writes, the Judaizers boasted of being sons of Abraham, direct descendants of the father of their faith, and thus members of God's chosen people. But, now that Christ has come, all who put their faith in Jesus receive the promise of the Holy Spirit and become spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham. All who put their faith in Jesus are spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham. This verse begins with, in order that, and as I said earlier, that means that there's a purpose. Christ redeemed us, verse 13, with the purpose that, and that leads to verse 14, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Christ redeemed us with the purpose that we would be children of Abraham, that we would have the blessing of Abraham, that we'd be adopted into God's family, that we would be in the family of God, that we'd have an inheritance uh, with Christ. Christ redeemed us, and this is awesome. We have the blessings of Abraham. One person writes, Paul was working here with the idea of an exchange curse. An exchange curse. By which the sin, guilt, and hell of lost men and women are placed upon Christ. While his righteousness, blessing, and merit are imputed to those in whose place he stands. Get that. Christ took our, our sin, guilt, and hell and Christ exchanged them. And gave us his righteousness and his merit. Martin Luther, the reformer, called this a happy exchange. One writes, yet Christ emerged victorious over sin, death, and the eternal curse. Christ emerged victorious. This he did for us. For this reason, the doctrine of atonement can never be merely a matter of cool theologizing or dispassionate discourse. For the Son of God became a curse... For us, he shed his precious blood. For us, he who from all eternity knew only the intimacy of the Father's bosom came to stand in that relation with God, which normally is a result of sin, estranged from God and the object of his wrath. All this for us. What response can we offer except that of wonder, devotion, and trust? And what response do we offer? Are we lovingly serving our King of kings and Lord of lords? Are we lovingly worshiping him? Or is it just a duty? Just something we come to do? I encourage you to pray about that. Are we passionately exalting the Lord? 
Are we coming here just trying to get through it? How do we respond to the great grace and mercy which our Lord and Savior has given us? In verse 14, Paul summarizes his train of thought in chapter 3 up to this point. There are two conclusions. Two conclusions. The blessing of Abraham is available to all the Gentiles in Christ. The blessing of Abraham is available to all the Gentiles in Christ. And number two, the promise of the Holy Spirit might be bestowed by faith. It's faith. Let's take some applications. I find this to be an encouraging passage about our righteous status before God. Oftentimes we are drained because we cannot meet someone's expectations. I wonder if you ever feel that way. Do you ever feel like you cannot meet someone's expectations? Do you ever feel like you're drained? Do you ever feel like you're just constantly pushing a boulder uphill? Maybe you've been doing that, trying to earn your way to heaven. I believe, you know, you might even think, we believe if you're good enough, you'll get to heaven. Well, that's nothing that the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that no one is good enough. If you could be good enough, you wouldn't have needed Jesus to go to the cross because we could do it on our own. God's standard is perfection. So Jesus did that for us. And if you feel overwhelmed, believing you cannot meet someone or God's expectations, rest in Christ, who met the expectation for us, going before us, and gave us his righteousness. God took care of us. Does that encourage you? God took care of us when we could not take care of ourselves. Are you encouraged that though God's standard is too high for you to reach, He took care of you. Jesus' death paid the penalty for our sins, but Jesus' death did more than that. I heard a story. Well, we'll make it up. I heard it, but it's a made-up story. It's probably true somewhere. A teenage boy took his new car out for a spin. He was going well over the speed limit, okay, well over the speed limit, and he's driving along the highway, and he sees flashing lights behind him, and he quickly pulled over. So he was respectful to pull over. The cop told him that he had been going... 40 miles per hour over the speed limit. 40 miles per hour over the speed limit. He's underage. He's not 18 yet. And maybe even if you're over 18, I don't know what happens if you get pulled over going that fast. But either way, in this case, he had to go to court right away. So the, the, the police officer says, you know, you're going way over the speed limit. I got to take you to court. So he takes the boy, the young man, to court. And the young man goes into the courtroom and he sees his father on the judge's seat. His father is a judge. And his father happens to be the one who has to try the case involving his own son. Now we think of this, and we think the son, of course, being very upset. But, I mean, can we even imagine how the father felt? Many of us, if that's our child, would think, we're going to crack the whip on him, right? You know, now it's, he's going to learn now. Well, the <laughs> Craig. But the father, the father has to be just. The father cannot just waive the sentence because it's his son. That wouldn't be right. The father has to be just. So the father, you know, tries his son and gives him a $100 fine for speeding. He has to do that. Then the father steps down from the bench, takes off his robes, and pays the fine for his son. He pays the fine for his son. Well, just as a father had to sentence his son, God must sentence us. But even as the Father paid the fine for us, so also Jesus paid the penalty for our sins by dying on the cross. God cannot just waive the fine. He has to be just. He would not be just if he just took care of it without a punishment. So even though the Father paid the fine, though, 
the son is still technically guilty of speeding. So the question is, though Jesus paid the price for our sins, are we still guilty? We would be still guilty. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, and we would be still guilty, but we are not. Because Jesus did not only forgive us, but he gave us his righteousness. Jesus did not only forgive us, but he gave us his righteousness. It's called imputed righteousness. I have another illustration. A father and daughter open a joint checking account, and as soon as possible, the daughter started to spend the money. After the money in the account ran out, she kept writing checks or doing debits. Of course, these checks bounced, and the bank placed heavy fines on her. Finally, she had a major negative balance and realized that she owed more money than she could pay for. Her father found out and paid back all the money. The bank had put a hold on the account because of the negative balance. So the daughter was left without an account to draw from. So the father transferred the account into his name only and opened a new account for her with a thousand or you could say a million, a trillion dollars in it. And like that story, Jesus did that. Jesus transferred our sin to his account and then transferred his righteousness, his innocence to our account. That's what Jesus did. He took our sin upon him and gave us his righteousness and his purity and his holiness. So when God looks upon us, he doesn't see us as dirty, rotten, no good, terrible, bad sinners. He sees us through Jesus. He sees Jesus' holiness and righteousness in us. That's called imputed Christ righteousness. Jesus forgives us and gives us right standing before God. That's the only way we could go before God in prayer. That's the only way we could talk to God. Because, because, because before that, our sin had left a barrier between us and God. And Jesus restored that relationship. But also, this passage says we have the blessing of Abraham. We have righteousness before God, and we have the Holy Spirit. Don't forget the Holy Spirit. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3 says this, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. Get this. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. God says he will pour out his spirit, the Holy Spirit, on us. Don't forget the Holy Spirit. As we apply this, be encouraged. You don't live the Christian life alone. You're not just forgiven. You don't just have Christ's righteousness. You also don't live the Christian life alone because he has given us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a promise to us, almost like an endowment. We receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Later in Galatians chapters 5 and 6, Paul will expand on what it means to have the Holy Spirit. But we only receive the Holy Spirit through faith. We only receive forgiveness through faith through trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior. There was a famous acrobat in Wirewalker whose greatest, tricks, greatest trick was to walk across Niagara Falls pushing a whale barrel with 200 pounds of flour in it. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never done that before. And it's not on my bucket list either. No, no, no goal. Well, this guy would walk across Niagara Falls pushing a wheelbarrow with 200 pounds of flour in it. In fact, I was trying to look up this. I had heard the illustration. Try and look it up online. And you can even see some very, very, very old pictures of a particular guy doing it, even drinking wine and champagne on each side and things like that. So he was pretty good, okay? And he would go back and forth doing that. 
Well, eventually, the crowd was so excited. They're cheering loudly for him. And he said, you've seen me do this with the wheelbarrow. You've seen me do this with 200 pounds of flour in it. How many of you believe that I could do this pushing a human being in that wheelbarrow? They all cheered. They all thought, yeah, we believe you can do it. Then he said, well, who's willing to do it? No one stepped up. Nobody was willing to get in that wheelbarrow and let him push them across Niagara Falls in a wheelbarrow. That's what faith is, though. That's what faith is. Faith is kind of doing that, trusting, trusting someone that much. Have we trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior? That we are trusting him with our life, with our eternal life. As we sum up this passage, there's a theologian named Scott McKnight, and he shares this. I love the illustration. He says, I have to compare the rule of the law, the Old Testament law in history, to the rule of typewriters. Typewriters have played, the rule typewriters have played in the development of word processing. The technology and idea of a typewriter was eventually developed into an electronic, faster, and far more complex computer that does word processing. But when typing on a computer, we realize that we are still using the old manual typewriter's technology. Further, we realize that the computer far transcends the typewriter, right? I mean, we all believe that. The computer far transcends the typewriter. My iPhone far transcends the typewriter. Everything that a typewriter wanted to be when it was a little boy and more is now found in the computer. This compares to the law. Everything the law wanted to be when it was young, as revealed to Moses, is found now in Christ and in the life of the Holy Spirit. Thus, when a Christian lives in the Spirit and under Christ, that Christian is not living contrary, is not living contrary to the law, but is living in transcendence to the law. It is for this very reason that life lived primarily under the law is wrong. When the computer age arrived, we put away our manual typewriters because they belonged to the former era. Paul's critique of the Judaizers, remember these Jewish believers, he thought they needed to keep the whole law. Paul's critique of the Judaizers is that they are typing on manual typewriters after computers are on the desk. I love that illustration. He calls him to put the manual typewriters away. But in putting them away, we do not destroy them. We fulfill them by typing on the computers. Every maneuver on a computer is the final hope of the manual typewriter. Now that faith, now that Christ has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. But not because the law is contrary to the promise. Rather, it is because the law is fulfilled in Christ in the Holy Spirit, in a manner similar to the way a typewriter is fulfilled in the technology of a computer. And I am profoundly, he says, he is profoundly thankful for both. And on most days, I'm thankful for both. I'm always thankful for Christ. Don't know about the computer. Depends if it's running right. So I hope as we close up today that you're trusting in Jesus and his promise through faith for your salvation. I hope as we close today, you don't feel like you're pushing a one-ton boulder uphill only to have it come repeatedly crashing down upon you. Hope you're trusting in the grace. Grace means unmerited favor. The grace of Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray that we are all trusting in your grace. 
in your grace. And I pray that we all know that we are saved by grace through faith in you. Lord God, that we can be saved by confessing. We can be saved any time and all the time by confessing we are sinners in need of a Savior. Believing in you, Jesus, that you're the only Savior. Committing to you and following you. Trusting in you. Lord God, and if anyone here has not done that, may today, Lord God, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day that they trust in you as Lord and Savior. Confess they are a sinner in need of a Savior. Believe that you are only Savior and commit their life to you. May they tell you that in a simple prayer such as this. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I have sinned and missed your perfect standard. I believe in you, Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and life. That going to the cross, you paid the penalty for my sin and saved me. And that you were resurrected, you rose again. I'm committing my life to you, following you. Holy Spirit, please indwell all of us. Give us a special filling and a special help. Help us living for you. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen.